Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who have decided to stand up, resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. Episode 33, Shut It Down. Mallory McMorrow is a Michigan state senator who rocketed to national prominence a little over a month ago. She woke up one day to find that she had been targeted in a fundraising email by a fellow senator as a, quote, progressive media troll, outraged that she couldn't, quote, groom and sexualize kindergartners or teach that eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. McMorrow hit back, making a speech on the floor of the Senate that went viral and was viewed over 9 million times in less than 24 hours. I wanted to talk with her about why she thinks what she said struck a nerve, what it's like to be a legislator in a swing state like Michigan right now, and what she thinks Democrats need to do to fight back against this type of ugly Republican rhetoric heading into the midterms. I encourage you to find the entire five-minute speech online if you haven't listened to it because it's fantastic. But here's a piece of it. Then we'll go to the interview. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment, or that healthcare costs are too high, or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Of course. Tell me, how did you get into politics and what drew you to run for office? Oh, my goodness. I never thought I would run for office at all. Uh, I always paid attention to politics and, and voted pretty consistently, but I was a car designer for Mazda. I worked at Mattel. I designed Hot Wheels cars. I ran a creative consultancy here in Michigan. But then the 2016 election happened. And I just remember on election night, friends texting saying, oh, it's going to come down to Michigan and Detroit is going to save the country. 
and it didn't. So I woke up the next day and was trying to figure out what to do. And what really pushed me over the edge was there was a, a video that went viral shortly after the election of students, of kids chanting, build that wall at another student. And that was my polling place. That's Royal Oak Middle School. So I was standing in that gym a few days earlier. And I just said, this is not who we are. And I went to the Women's March in Detroit and just found so many wonderful people. And we started networking and exchanging numbers. And eventually I found Emerge America, which recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. Went through that program for six months, honestly thought that I would volunteer on Gretchen Whitmer's campaign because this was a new space for me. I didn't feel qualified to to start anywhere else. But Jocelyn Benson, who is our current secretary of state, said, you've got this amazing career. Just run for the office you want to run for. And we did and flipped a district. I beat an incumbent. I was the only first time candidate to do so in 2018. And here we are four years later. What do you think made you a good person to jump into politics at that point? What did she mean that you've had this amazing career? Just what do you think it was that made you successful as someone running for the first time? I think it was a lot of things. And, and, you know, none of it was intentional. So as an industrial designer and a creative director, I'm used to you come up with a thousand different ideas and you test them and you put them in front of focus groups and you solicit feedback and you work collectively to get to the best solution. And I felt like that was missing in politics, that you get people who are always advocating for their idea, no matter what the input is or what the implications are. So I was able to run on that. I was able to run in Metro Detroit as somebody who came out of the auto industry. I get our signature industry and I'm younger. So a lot of people looked at me and said, you remind me a lot of my daughter who left and went to Chicago or New York or, or elsewhere. Why did you come back and what can we do to keep my kids here? And it was actually a good hit back on my opponent. You know, their attack against me was she's not from here, but it ended up being a strength instead of a weakness. Oh, interesting. How would you describe the political atmosphere in Michigan overall as a swing state? Is there a chance to work across the aisle? No, there's no chance to work across the aisle. I, I got elected in 2018. I've introduced 40 bills. Not a single one has ever gotten a hearing. In Michigan, the controlling party controls everything. They control the agenda, they control committees, they control chairs. So they don't even take any of the bills up to hear them out or debate them, let alone pass them. Because I flipped a district, I'm a target. And that is the reality here. And, and Michigan is the entire spectrum all at once. We are a state that elected Gretchen Whitmer, Jocelyn Benson, Dana Nessels, an openly gay attorney general who fought for marriage equality in the Supreme Court. And we are also the home of the KKK and more homegrown militia activity than any other state in the country. Timothy McVeigh trained in Michigan militia groups. We had armed gunmen in our capital. So when I saw the insurrection play out in D.C., I wasn't surprised because we had the trial run here in Michigan. Our state Republican Party is doubling and tripling down on extremism. It feels like a competition for who can say the most vile thing. While in the same week that my speech was kind of taking off and getting all this national attention, the state GOP had their annual nominating convention and nominated two far-right conspiracy Trump-backed 
candidates against all of the establishment Republicans who are running for attorney general and secretary of state. The secretary of state candidate has said that yoga is a satanic ritual, that the LGBTQ community goes against God's design. And she keeps saying that her vote didn't count in 2020. And there's no basis in reality. And if a reporter dares to ask about it, you know, it's the mainstream media and you're, it's the line left. So tension is high. But I think there's a huge opportunity, especially with constituents like mine, you know, lifelong Republicans who frankly feel lost right now. And I'm really intentional to separate when I'm hitting hard at Republicans, quote unquote, I'm not talking about my constituents. I'm talking about this current party, this leadership. It's not their Republican Party anymore. And the choice right now is between people who want the government to work and people who don't. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your district. So my district is a suburban district. I live two miles outside of the city of Detroit. But I think that one thing that really kind of drives it into focus, I represent an 80% white district outside of an 80% black city. And it is very wealthy, highly educated, the type of district you've seen Democrats pick up around the country where this used to be a Republican stronghold. But as people like Donald Trump got elected president, we've seen the sort of rise of a far right party that is more focused on hate and othering and marginalizing people. That's not who my constituents are. They, they don't want to hate people. They want lower taxes and they want a friendly business climate. Right. And a lot of frankly, suburban white women who after 2016 really woke up. We have a, a group called Fems for Dems here started by a woman named Lori Goldman. I think her original pitch was something like, what if we bought one less handbag and put that money towards electing Democrats? And they are a force of nature. And that is the district that I represent. They are aware of all of these issues, maybe a little bit later than others, but really care about making the state a better place. Sounds like it's a similar demographic to sort of the people that Trump is trying to attract. Do you feel like that demographic can kind of just go either way or is it really just that he lucked out that one time and... Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that I gave the specific speech that I did a few weeks ago was really speaking to suburban white moms. And what we've seen with Glenn Youngkin's race out of Virginia and, and kind of these races around the country is this attempt to capitalize on the very real frustrations that moms have had over the past few years with COVID, school closures, trying to balance school and work and having your kids home at all times. I gave birth to a baby during COVID. I have a COVID baby, so I get it. But I wanted to give space for women who are like me, who are not falling into these moms for liberty groups that are funded by the Koch brothers and going to school board meetings and, and fanning the flames of race fear mongering and the CRT and the anti-1619 project. They don't want to ban books. And, and now it's being focused on trans kids to say, look, I see you. I hear you. You're frustrated and tired, but we've got a job to do. And we need to channel that energy into fighting back this really divisive rhetoric. Yeah. Well, let me ask you more about the speech then. So what was your goal in making that speech overall? So I woke up a couple of weeks ago and saw a screenshot of a fundraising email that a colleague had sent out that named me and accused me of grooming and sexualizing kindergartners, supporting pedophilia 
and wanting eight-year-olds to believe that they were responsible for slavery. So it just felt like the perfect trifecta of current <laughs> fringe conspiracy theory talking points that are just being lobbed at kind of anybody who dares to stand up and, and say no. So I I sat and didn't want to respond in the moment. And I felt terrible. I mean, just what a horrific thing for somebody to say, especially a mother to say about another mother. But I realized by the end of the day that however I felt in that one day is how somebody who is the parent of a trans kid feels every single day that they are accused of being disgusting, being pedophiles, being groomers. And I knew I wanted to give a public response and hopefully in a way that would get out of the usual Democrats versus Republicans slap fight and shut it down because I dared to kind of stand up with the LGBTQ community and it felt like the attack on me was the warning shot and it's going to take all of us to to put an end to it. Yeah. I read that she isn't running against you. So no. why did she go after you? <laughs> I tried to figure that out for a while. So she, a couple of weeks prior, had given an invocation. So we have an invocation to open each Senate session. And, and usually it's not offensive, right? However you feel about separation of church and state. It's just supposed to be, you know, a moment of intention setting, reminding all of us that we are responsible for, you know, 10 million residents of the state of Michigan and to do our best work. She stood up and pleaded with God because our children are under attack from dark forces that would have them see or know or hear things against their parents' will. And this was right after Florida's Don't Say Gay bill was signed into law. And we knew what she was saying. For me, it was just such a disgusting misuse of prayer <laughs> and weaponizing Christianity to target marginal kids. It was just, you know. So myself and two other colleagues got up and walked out. I tweeted out something to the effect of without repeating the other senator's words. I just want every kid in the state to know that you are seen and heard and, and welcome in Michigan. So I think she took offense to that. And I've got to imagine that's why. Why me? Hmm. So what was the response like? It's been unbelievable. I mean, no, no state legislator gives a speech and expects that. I, I think something like 16 million people by now have seen it. And our office isn't new to getting some national attention. So Oakland County, Michigan has been the focus of a lot of election fraud claims. Mike Lindell went on national television and said that votes in Oakland County were changed by computers in China. So we have had our fair share of calls and emails from around the country. And I kind of prepared my staff for that once I saw numbers start to take off. Just, you know, steal yourself up. It might get a little rough. And it hasn't been. It's been, you know, a couple of weeks now. And every single day, our voicemail is full. Our email box is full. I stop at our PO box every single day. And it is like stuffed to the gills with letters of just people like handwriting their life story and what this means for them. And it's people who are Republicans and Democrats and religious and not religious and gay and not gay, just to say, this is what needed to be said. And it felt like a release. And it has been amazing. I haven't slept, but it, it's been really wonderful to kind of tap into what feels like kind of a level set. People have just said, we have to get back to being civil and decent with each other. And this has gone way too far. Right. So do you think that's why it got such a huge response? Because I, 
I feel like you were civil, but you also took it on, right? Right. Well, and, and this didn't happen in a vacuum. So the Republican majority here in Michigan has held many hearings about the 2020 election and relitigating all of these claims and, you know, doing it under the guise of, well, you know, people are concerned, so we have to do investigations, not realizing or realizing and doing it intentionally that continuing to ask questions, especially when you're in a position of authority, lends credibility to the claims. When we've had 250 audits here in Michigan of our election, there's no proof whatsoever. Every lawsuit has been thrown out. And I, after January 6th, after the insurrection happened, I gave a speech then to say, look, if we are going to stand up and validate the big lie that it opens the door to the rest of QAnon, which let's just peel back what that is. That is the idea that a satanic cabal of pedophiles actually runs the government and how dangerous that is. That's how you got a gunman opening fire on a pizza place in D.C. That's how you got there's a, a guy here that killed his wife thinking that she was part of the deep state and another man in California who took his kids to Mexico and killed three of them. And it's it's so dangerous. So kind of where we got to sort of running up to this speech is we can't pretend that it doesn't exist. It started in the darkest corners of the internet, but now it is being used by one of our two major political parties as a strategy. And I felt this way that, you know, maybe by talking about it, we're giving it air when we shouldn't. We should just not talk about something as crazy and off the wall as this. But it's not going anywhere. It's only getting bigger unless more people stand up and put an end to it. Yeah. And it seems like there are so many things that we call dog whistles that they're using that aren't really dog whistles anymore. You know what I mean? They're actually kind of shouting them. And a lot of Democrats are just ignoring that conversation altogether and kind of hoping it'll go away, it seems like. Yeah, well, and there was a, a good I, I retweeted in an article a couple of days ago just about how for decades, the right wing has really controlled the narrative around reproductive rights and the media. And frankly, all of us Democrats adopted the language of pro-life Right. when we have seen now in the wake of the draft opinion coming out about Roe, Louisiana just flat out introduced legislation to not only ban abortion, but IUDs and IVF and it's full on forced pregnancy. We have to get more aggressive about language and not kind of fall into the trap. And as it relates to the issue that caught me, the attention that it's gotten in the first place, I've talked to Democrats who said, well, I don't want to give a speech against parental rights. I believe in parental rights, but it's the way that they've defined it is not actual parental rights. It is hate and discrimination, and it mimics what we saw decades ago at the start of desegregation. We saw angry white people with signs that said states' rights and parents' rights. And I was going through historical photos and one that just like shakes me to my core is a sign that said, all I want for Christmas is a clean white school. And that was under the guise of parental rights. So we can't fall into the trap of letting people define language and being afraid to talk about it. You know, this isn't parental rights. This is hate and discrimination. Right. Not letting them control the conversation, which I think they've been really good at doing. Really good at it. And consistent. You know, it's talk consistently. Language matters. Define what things mean and be consistent about it. Yeah. You also, I really liked what you had to say about taking back faith from people who have weaponized it. So tell me more about that point of view and how you think it's possible to move forward with that. Well, I have been 
very hesitant to even talk about my own faith background because of the pressure it feels like that is led by Republicans that if you do not fit into this neat box, you can't claim that you have a faith background. So my husband is Jewish. I grew up Catholic, very active in the church. But as I kind of said in my speech, you know, we left because my priest wasn't welcoming to a divorced mom who wasn't sitting in the church pew every Sunday. And instead we went off and did service and, and acts. And that's really how I grew up. But I think that that has been a strategy is to push any of us who don't fit into that performative version of whatever faith is to not talk about it. And that has allowed them to take it and weaponize it. It can be used for good and it can be used for evil. You know, the Catholic Church is a perfect example of that. You want to talk about grooming, actual grooming. But it can also be really powerful. There's a lot of social justice. So I think that that is why it's so important to talk about what it means to you. And even if you don't, if you're not actively faithful, that you still believe in community and family and all of these values that somehow we as Democrats have just given away because I guess we're afraid to talk about it, but we have to. And it's stand in your values and take them back because otherwise it gets used to hurt people. So what do you think if you were going to give other Democrats advice based on what you did? What kind of advice do you think you would give them, especially going into the midterms, right? Yeah. And I will say since the speech, and I don't want to claim a speech had any impact on this, but in West Michigan, we had a special election this past week and a Democrat, Carol Glanville, flipped a district that was a Trump plus 14, deep, deep red district. And she followed kind of the same model, which we didn't coordinate at all, but it's the idea that this is just hate and extremism. It's not welcome here. And oh, by the way, we actually have some solutions for the things that we care about, our families, our communities, our schools, but you got to do step one, which is shut that down. Otherwise, people don't hear the second part. And a lot of people have asked me like, oh, is this a rebuke to Michelle Obama saying when they go low, we go high? You know, I don't think I went low. I think I was aggressive and stayed high. And I think you can do both, right? I think there's the misunderstanding that that meant just ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. I don't think that's what she meant. But I think people are frustrated and want to feel like the Democrats who are in office or running for office feel their frustration and are willing to fight for them and not just pretend like this is normal because it's not normal. You know, Mitch McConnell said last year to a group of donors that they didn't intend on putting out any policy ahead of the midterm. So it's not a secret. We can call it out, call it hate and say, oh, by the way, we have solutions and we can debate those, but we have them and they don't. Right. That's a fantastic message. I've also interviewed Alessandra Biaggi, who is a New York state senator. And we talked a lot about this generation of millennials and sort of what they bring to the table and how different their thinking is. And I'm Gen X and I really admire you know, this younger generation of women to a certain extent is kind of like, why should we put up with all the stuff that you had to put up with? Do you feel that that is part of it? Yeah, I think so. And and I will say going into the past few weeks when I kind of gave the speech, I haven't done this my entire life. I'm not a democratic strategist. And sort of in the back of my head, I thought, well, if I'm going to go down, I may as well go down swinging. Having that willingness to step up and do the right thing, even if it's not 
necessarily the right political strategy. I think in the long run, my hope is that that pays off. And I think people respect it. And I think those of us who are millennials, we've kind of grown up with social media, at least since since college for me. And I think recognizing that there is no separation between a person and their job anymore. People will vote for you if they like you and they trust you. And that comes down to, do they feel like they know you as a person, not just a name and a policy platform? So I'm pretty snarky on Twitter. My Instagram has a lot of pictures of my dog and I love craft beer. You know, I post all those things and and I feel like it gives people a window into, that's a person I might want to hang out with. And she is who she is. You know, she's not hiding anything. And I talked to a lot of people when I ran for the first time who said, I might not agree with every policy thing you are going to put up, but I like you and you're going to tell me straight how it is. And I think that if millennials have anything to offer, it's recognizing, you know, be authentic and give people a look into who you actually are as a person. Right, right. You mentioned wanting to flip the state house. Do you think that's a real possibility? Oh, yeah. Right now in both the House and the Senate, we need to pick up four seats in both chambers. The Senate has been under Republican control since 1984. I was not alive yet. So it's been Republican-led longer than my lifetime. Michigan has an independent redistricting commission, and we have independently drawn maps that are actually held up right now as the gold standard nationwide in terms of effectiveness. Are they perfect? No, but they are fair on a partisan basis. So we have fought from behind for decades. Nobody thought I would flip my district. And if we've got fair maps ahead of us, we are going to flip the Senate for the first time in a very long time and be able to run the agenda we want to run, which is really exciting. Right. Yeah, that is great that you have fair maps, especially because gerrymandering is such a huge problem around the country. And that's a recent development, right? That happened in 2018. Yeah. And it's something that the voters voted overwhelmingly to create in a ballot initiative in 2018. It was something like 70, 71 percent of voters created this and took that responsibility away from the legislature. Because I think everybody sees this isn't reflective of the state as a whole. Even if you are a Republican, you're looking at who's coming out of these primaries and you're like, this is not working. Yeah. I actually heard that there's a law on the books in Michigan that is going to come into effect if Roe is overturned. Tell me about that. And are you working on anything to try and cope with that? Yeah. So when Roe falls, and I think especially given the draft opinion, I don't think anybody is expecting that it won't. Michigan has a 1931 law on the books that will go into effect immediately that not only bans abortion, but makes it criminal. It is a felony for those who seek abortion and for abortion providers. And there is also language, especially considering the time that it was written, that outlaws education about so-called tinctures or pamphlets about uh, treatments, which could be interpreted to mean contraceptives as well. It would make Michigan one of the most restrictive in the entire country. And there are no exceptions for rape, incest, or life of the mother. So we are going at it on every front right now. There is a ballot initiative that is being circulated by Planned Parenthood, ACLU, and a group called Michigan Voices to amend the state constitution to codify access into law. And over the past few days, more than 10,000 people have signed up to volunteer to circulate those petitions. It's been amazing. 
Simultaneously, we have legislation. I am the primary bill sponsor of the Reproductive Health Act in the Senate to codify access and reproductive rights. My colleague Erica Geis has a bill to repeal the 1931 law, so those would have to go hand in hand. And then Governor Whitmer filed a lawsuit against the state to compel the Supreme Court to decide on the state level if reproductive rights should be protected in our state constitution. So we're trying every angle. And, you know, even if this current legislature doesn't take my legislation up, I think it's absolutely critical that we put it up, we fight, we talk about it to show people we are trying. And this is why this election is so important. And it's going to take all of us because we know we're the majority. This is a very loud, hateful extreme minority of people, but they're winning and they're winning because we're letting them. Yeah, I saw where you also said people are just tired. And I think that's really true. I mean, I think we felt like we were fighting so hard for four years and really wanted that to be over in 2020. But of course it isn't. Yeah. And I I felt that. So I think it's going to ebb and flow, take some time off, but keep coming back. But right now it's so important for everybody to get off the sidelines and sign up for a campaign or an initiative or a group, start going to your local Dem club uh, and just figure out how it works. Whether you wanted to write postcards or knock doors or make phone calls or make food for volunteers. I mean, there is a way that everybody can get involved. And it's just like learning any new skill. But the more you do it, especially around people who are like-minded that support you, you're going to be better and you're going to feel more impactful and you're going to keep coming back. So I think this is going to be a life of work, but I think it's worth doing because our rights are not guaranteed and we have to keep fighting for them.